Almighty God, you have given everything in giving Jesus Christ into this world. And as we consider these stories from 30 years or so later, give us grace to take them with the full seriousness that they deserve, remembering the gift that Jesus represents to us. In stories that may be familiar, let us not treat them with too much familiarity and give us the wisdom, the discernment to know what it is you would have us learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you just put your hand up if you were here last Sunday morning? Okay, thank you. It's quite a few, but not everyone. Uh, Roger Hibbins, uh, in connection with Passion for Life, told uh, an amusing but a sobering story of a missed opportunity uh, with his neighbour to speak of Jesus. And here today come these stories from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus is known to all the neighbours. So would you please find it, if you've closed your Bible, Mark chapter 6. It's on page uh, 1008. It's not a story that seems to reflect very well on Jesus. He cannot do much by way of healing because of their lack of faith. And they won't put their faith in him because even though they agree he's wise and even amazing, they won't believe in him because he is, after all, just the son of the carpenter from down the road. You know, Mary's son. Yes, that's right. The big family lived on the corner. And Mark tells us they took offence at him. They rejected him. And just by the way, do notice that you would not have included this story if you were putting together a biography of Jesus and his work. He's not very successful. He doesn't look very powerful. And it's a small indication that the Gospel writers did simply want to tell the stories as they happened. And in its own way, it's just a powerful little argument for the general accuracy of the Gospels, that they include the material we wouldn't necessarily have included. But anyway, in chapter 3, we have heard Jesus teach in the synagogue and then be rejected by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who start to plot his death. Now, in chapter 6, we read again of him preaching in the synagogue, and this time there is a rejection again, but from a different group, those who know him very well or think they do. Next week, we'll read of the rejection of John the Baptist. The activity of the kingdom brings life, but also death. And the preaching of the kingdom divides people into those who accept and those who reject. And that's the norm. One small family trait that I've inherited is that I can lose myself completely on a beach for the afternoon in building dams. Indeed, my one complaint to God about these amazing Norfolk beaches around us is that too few of them have any really good damming streams in them. Now, some of you, of course, are going to switch off, and for the next 15 minutes, just think about good streams you can recommend to me afterwards. Well, fair enough. But the trick, as far as I'm concerned, is that once you've dammed the main channel, you have to choose where you want the breach to occur. 
especially if you want to cut a new channel. There's no point letting the water just wander back uh, to uh, the channel that you've just uh, dammed up. You have to prevent it rediscovering that old channel. And if you get it right, then the breach happens and the water fans out, trying to find new ways down to the sea. Jesus is rejected in one place, his hometown. He is amazed at their lack of faith. He goes to a few others, and then he comes up with a bright idea. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two. The main channel isn't exactly blocked, but it's not able to do all it could. And so Jesus thinks, well, let's redirect, let's fan out. We can cover much more territory than I can manage as one person. And this, the work from which he sends them is important work. They're sent out with instructions that leave them dependent on the welcome they meet. It's an echo of the dependency that a good Jew would have shown on his way to worship at the temple. That sacred activity was also apparently to be undertaken without a staff or a wallet, with particular attention to what you were wearing on your feet. So what Jesus is doing is sending them out on sacred business, and he's treating it with great seriousness. He warns them to expect some rejection themselves and what to do about it. And later on, after the story of John the Baptist, we'll hear that they return to him with stories of all that they've done and taught. That's what happens in our two stories today. But what can we say about it? Well, I'm sure I'm not the only one who found growing up that the hardest people to talk to about God were family. With most people who become Christians, becoming Christians, about the age of 19 or earlier, there's all kinds of opportunity for terribly well-meant rejection. It's just a phase he's going through. I've read articles by journalists horrified that their grown-up children in London have encountered Alpha. We didn't bring them up for this, they wail. Those who know us well find it difficult to credit change in us. We need to register, though, that the experience of being rejected, which is at the heart of these stories, is not the same as not quite getting around to it because we feel awkward. When we muff it, we can't say, oh, that's an important sign of rejection and the Lord is leading me elsewhere. No, it isn't. We may just need to try again, even with those close, nearest and dearest to us. But it can mean that for many of us, it will be easier to speak of Jesus to those who don't know us so well that they can write off our witness. Playing away is sometimes likely to get a better result than playing at home. And so, to something completely different. As you know, I was the resident chaplain at St. Peter's English Church in Zermatt in Switzerland at the beginning of the year. Simon Elphick was with me and a couple of other guys. If you've seen the photos on Facebook, you would think that we did nothing but ski. But nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, no, no, no. The point of those chaplaincies is to ensure the Sunday services happen in the local church, but then also to have one's eyes and ears open for those two weeks 
and to make the most of every opportunity that comes along with people that you'll, uh, you've never met before and will probably never meet again. We're away from home. Most of them are away from home. And some things come more easily. So I'm going to ask Simon to come up here. There you go, Squire. I was just thinking how glad I was we didn't have to go out in sandals and without an extra tunic. <laughs> yes, well, yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, so it is Switzerland, so you rather did need your wallet. Um... <laughs> um uh, with the four of us, we kind of did our, arranged our lives slightly differently. Tell us the pe about the people that you skied with mostly, Simon. Um, it was with the, the Ski Club of Great Britain who organised a fairly sort of informal skiing on a day-to-day -day basis with a, a representative uh, who leads the group for the day. And I fairly quickly realised that that was the way during the week that, one, I'd find people to ski with, and secondly, I may get to know some people that way. Okay. And, and how did that work out, getting to know the people? Um, over the course of the week, there were three or four people I got um, more friendly with, and uh, I thought as the week goes on, it would be, it would be good to have a chance to, to talk about Jesus with some of these. Um, Having a father who's interested in this sort of stuff, I knew that he would be interested in prayer topics while we were there. He'd asked me before we went, so I sent a, an email back home to say that I'd met some people and would um, like to talk about Jesus with them if I got the chance. So. Okay. And I know that came up. What happened when you spoke to, um, to Neil over drinks? Fairly simply, a guy called Neil, who I had got to know, we were sitting having a because the other thing we did was go to the bar, wasn't it? As yes. As well as, uh, um, I, I kind so. of hoped you weren't going to say that, Simon. So I was sitting, talking to Neil, and... Uh, just sitting, randomly, just sitting in, randomly, in a hotel. Yeah. But, yeah and uh, funnily enough, it, the, the conversation came as a result of um, talking and having mentioned that my father used to be a clergyman. Um, he also obviously knew I was there as part of the, the uh, chaplaincy team. And he just said to me, have you always been religious? And I said, well, I don't really like the word religious very much because we all are. Um, so he then very helpfully said, well, Christian then. Um, and from that I was able to say, yes, but it's, it's partly to do with my upbringing, but not completely because I have a brother who couldn't be further away from, from Christ than I am close to him. Um, and from that I was just able to very quickly explain um, how as I'd grown up I'd got to know this person called Jesus better and someone who is able to not only uh, is able to predict his death and his resurrection well in advance of the event is someone to be taken seriously and that was, that was where we left it um, it's likely that we'll get to meet again because this chap actually comes down to Norwich on business so hopefully at some point in the future There'll be a chance to meet, meet over a curry. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You will notice that that is not rocket science. I can bear witness that Simon was not there with his teeth flashing and his white suit blazing with evangelistic fervor. He wasn't making anyone cringe. He just did the job asked of him, simply and well. 
And it's worth just registering the drama of a moment like that, especially because right now, and quite rightly, we are surrounded by these impressions of the huge dramas going on far away in the world in Haiti. This is not that kind of drama, but it is very dramatic. After all, from the perspective of eternity, is Tsermat, with all its glitzy wealth, any better off than Haiti? There are not churches opening and welcoming 5,000 people in Tsermat the way they are in Haiti. And yet Tsermat, I can say, has many signs of lives that have collapsed, of created beauty that is destroyed. Not the Matterhorn, which looks as beautiful as ever it did, but the human beings that wander the streets. Created beauty destroyed by attachment to wealth rather than by the experience of poverty. There is drama here, even though these sound like small little stories tucked away in Mark's Gospel. And for us it may mean let's not give up too easily or early on our neighbours and our family. They may not be rejecting, it may just be they're not very interested until the right moment comes along. Nonetheless, do be alert to take things further afield. Indeed, let me make one suggestion. As we've heard, passion for life is coming. And we know from what Mark announced to us that there are different reactions. Some of us are up for it. Some of us are scared of it. Uh, I've had my in-laws here uh, this week. I didn't actually myself go last Wednesday. Uh, and that puts me in the majority, I gather. According to one or two who did go, say, yeah, well, the kind of people you'd expect to go to such a thing turned up. Some of us are up for it. Some of us are scared of it. Some of us are too shy to admit even that we're nervous of it. Some of us are thinking, oh, here's just another thing in church life. We'll wait till it blows over. But the truth is, of course, that the mission of God's kingdom is always upon us. Anything like passion for life is just there to help us focus. It's no more than that. But it is not less than that. It is to be a focus. And it may be that what God wants of us at a time like this is simply to extend our circle of friends in quite an intentional way to make new ones. Those who know you well probably already know what you believe and they either share it themselves or, that they, or they know you're far too well behaved to talk to them about it. So why not use passion for life? Take any excuse you can to push the boat out, to make new contacts, to go outside the circle of those you normally reach. And perhaps consider doing so in company with at least one other person. It's not accidental that Jesus sent them out two by two. There's the practical and emotional, psychological issues of support, but there's also the fact that, of course, in Jewish culture, two people were needed to bear witness accurately. And we may find that it's helpful to have another one with us, to stand with us in prayer and activity, and be intentional about it. Take a decision, perhaps within a small group that you may belong to, whichever of you feel called to do it. Take a decision, and then talk about how you are going to push that boat out, to extend the circle. Some of you, many of you perhaps, will have heard the name of um, Bill Hybels, who's the leader of a large church outside Chicago. He's actually, although he's um, gifted in many ways, he's not the world's most natural evangelist. 
But I like one phrase he uses. He calls people simply to walk across the room. Say hello to someone you don't know yet. Hold out your hand to shake the hand of someone who's a stranger. I guarantee that there are people in every one of our lives who want there to be a friendly handshake or a hello. The school gate, the office, the person you get a coffee from on the way to work. Being friendly, walking across the room. And if Passion for Light had no effect whatsoever on this congregation, no events, no special activities, no nothing, except that we all lifted our eyes to see people we've not seen and walked across the room to say hello, then I reckon the kingdom of God would grow as a direct result. We are here in safe little Norwich, but in the middle of a battlefield not less alarming than that of Afghanistan. The scenery of ruined lives that surrounds us is not less terrible than Haiti. Let me end by pointing to what the disciples were to do when rejected. They were to shake the dust off their feet. But that's an action with a two-way meaning. Yes, the, the idea was that the dust, any good Jew, having come through pagan territory, would take the dust off his or her feet because they would not want to defile the, the holy land with the dust of unbelievers. But the action to which Jesus invites his followers is an action with a two-way meaning. Yes, the, the dust is removed, but you can't do it. You daren't do it without a clear signal that you've been rejected. You can't shake off the dust while thinking, well, of course, they probably wouldn't have wanted to listen anyway if I'd said anything. Jesus is expecting of his followers that they will do a thorough job. And we have no warrant for believing that though we may not be the twelve, his expectation on us is any less in this terrible, alarming, and appalling place we call home. Walk across the room. It's not difficult, but do it, because that's how the kingdom grows. Let's pray. Lord God, this feels so safe. Our lives seem so comfortable. Yet every day we are in touch with those who accept or reject, who are interested, like Neil was in that bar, or who have no interest whatsoever. The dramas of heaven and hell are being played out around us just as much as they are in any other place in the world. And you have called us to be players in those dramas. Give us the grace to play our part, not out of guilt, not out of a sense of earning a smile from you, but simply because we've heard Jesus tell us in these stories that the kingdom of God matters for eternity. It's mattered for us. Give us grace to tell others. Amen.